Hello and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Jankowski, and today I'm excited to be broadcasting for Money 2020 and to be meeting with Jay Dearborn. Jay is the president of Wex Corporate Payments. Jay joined Wex in 2016, bringing to the company more than 15 years of experience driving strategic growth, marketing, and operational performance improvement. As president of Corporate Payments, Jay is responsible for Wex's virtual card and other payments solutions. He previously served as Wex's VP of Strategy, and prior to joining Wex in January 2016, Jay held senior roles at McKinsey and American Express. Jay is also a Wharton alum, so we're especially excited to welcome him to the podcast. Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to the team at Money 2020 USA for hosting Wharton Fintech in Las Vegas for their annual conference to meet with and interview thought leaders in the fintech industry. We'd also like to thank Wharton Fintech's platinum sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation and Finance. The Stevens Center is the premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Jay, thanks for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Wharton alum twice, actually. Wharton undergrad and Wharton grad. Uh, even better. And Well, it gets better than that, too. My wife is a Wharton grad and a Wharton undergrad, too. Oh, wow. I was so going to say the trifecta, but that's that's <laughs> even better than the trifecta. Yeah. Um, so, um, so to start, could you tell us a bit about your background? Yep, yep. So... Um, you got the background right as you as you introduced me. So I'm the the president of Wex Corporate Payments. Um, Wex is a 1.5 billion revenue company uh, focused on B2B payments. Um, prior to Wex, I was a partner at McKinsey. I was in the Philadelphia office, um, although I can't say that I saw the office that often. Uh, I did most of my work uh, in New York City as well as continental Europe. So I traveled quite a bit back and forth over the Atlantic for eight years. Um, prior to Wharton, I was a um, I was at American Express uh, and uh, ran or, or entered American Express at 22 in their um, strategic planning group uh, and then rolled out of strategic planning into the merchant side of American Express. Um, I guess the only other relevant thing is not only do I have an MBA, but I also have a foreign policy degree from Tufts. Uh, so when I was at uh, Wharton, I actually did a dual degree, a custom dual degree program with the Fletcher School at Tufts. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah. And I guess it comes in handy when you're running uh, international business. It does. It comes in very handy, actually. So you, you've had a long career in payments. What got you into payments or why have you stuck around payments? Yeah, so, well, it started when I was 22 and I went to American Express. And so as a Wharton undergrad, I was looking at the different opportunities, uh, and this is 2001, I was looking at different opportunities to learn and uh, to have a great culture and be exposed to a lot of business problems. And I think that is kind of normal, whether you're a graduate or an undergraduate at Wharton, is go find an experience that will give you exposure to a lot of different things so that you can hone your craft in business. And so I think I actually just stumbled, frankly, into payments because Amex was just a really good cultural fit. It was, it was in New York City, I really respected the company. It was an interesting time to be there. And then um, I left American Express to pursue my graduate degrees and um, I joined McKinsey for the exact same reason I joined American Express, which was to go and be exposed to a lot of different business problems. Uh, you know, I look at management consulting almost as like a postdoc for business students. I said I'd go for two years and I, stayed, I ended up staying for eight. During that time, I did zero work in payments. Zero. No payments at all. Oh, I stayed away. Okay. I know all the financial services guys at McKinsey, uh, but I stayed away from it um, so that I could get a random walk through different functions as well as different industries. Um, and then actually it was just through serendipity that I met the chairman of the board at Wex and then the CEO of Wex and we started talking and this led to that and here I am at Wex. And now you're back in payments. They're back in payments. Yeah, and it's really <laughs> great fun. I actually, so uh, yesterday on the floor of Money 2020, the, the, the chance I got to walk around the floor, I ran into a colleague from uh, 22 
a Wharton undergrad uh, who also was in strategic planning at American Express, and we hadn't seen each other for 15 plus years. Wow. So it's a small industry. It I is. left the industry for a period of time. I came back, a lot of the same faces. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So, uh, so tell us a bit more about Wex. Uh, you mentioned yeah. it's a one and a half billion dollar revenue company. Yep. What does what is, what, what is Wex do? Yep. So Wex has been around since the early 1980s. Um, it started as a fleet card company. So um, financial services focused on um, fleets, whether they be large fleets, so think of like a UPS or a FedEx moving items around the United States, or small fleets like Joe's Plumbing in you know the corner here in Las Vegas. What we help the fleet companies do is purchase fuel and manage their fleet spend and then actually earn rebates on it as well. We have a closed loop um, payments network in the fleet space. It's a global business for us. At this point, it makes up about 60% of the company. We have a healthcare business. So our healthcare business, we work with financial institutions, we work with third-party administrators, we work with health plans, and we license our software stack. So think of this as a white-labeled SaaS solution for different healthcare providers here in the United States focused on consumer-driven healthcare. Okay. So HSAs, FSAs, um, HRAs, this unique thing that we have in the United States of America, which are tax advantage stored value accounts. Yeah. So we've built a software stack over the past 10 years, which really is the Cadillac of the industry. And we both sell that direct to corporates as well as these uh, partners who white label the software. And then the third thing that we do is uh, the corporate payments business, which is pretty near and dear to my heart because I lead that business. And the corporate payments business is focused really on two things. Uh, it's focused on global travel. So at this point, we have privileged relationships with all the major online travel agencies in the world, and we're their virtual card provider of choice. Uh, and then we focus on the US accounts payable market. And what this looks like are um, corporates here in the United States who have an accounts payable department and an accounts payable file, and we look to fulfill that via virtual card, via wire, via bank transfer, via check. And of course, you know, our, our objective function in this arena is how do we move as much to virtual card to electronify the accounts payable file, as well as um, expose ourselves to interchange and our customers to rebate. Very interesting, that's really helpful background. Yep. So digging into the corporate payment space, uh, for me at least, I imagine for some of our listeners, yeah. the space is less, uh, as consumers, it's less intuitive. We're not mm -hmm. necessarily exposed to it much. Yeah. Um, could you tell us a bit more? So you mentioned the um, the two major areas on global travel and AP with with large corporations. Yep. Tell us a bit more about what sorts of virtual cards you're providing, how that's provisioned, yeah. all that kind of, how, how it's operationalized, I guess. Yeah. So think of it this way. Uh, there's an important piece of history here, which is Wex in partnership with Priceline and Mastercard in 1999, essentially created this thing called the virtual card, which was using technology to raise a unique 16-digit number on the MasterCard network, um, lock down that card so that it could only be used at a particular merchant for a particular amount of money during a particular period of time, and then um, issuing that card electronically, so no physical plastic, and delivering it to a hotel um, you know, on behalf of Peter who's staying at that hotel for that period of time. We invented that product you know, about 20 years ago. Since then, it's become the industry standard, really, in for online travel. So think of, think of the Expedias of the world, the Booking.coms of the world, the C-Trips of the world, the Agodas, the Travel Logos, the Hotel Tonight's. I mean, all of these big online travel agencies, which really each of them, their, their natural boundaries of their business 
are international because they're enabling travel. And the software stack at this point, as well as our banking provision, allows us to create one-time use 16-digit cards on both the MasterCard network as well as the Visa network. We own the entire software stack. We actually own the card processing system behind that. So it's something that um, is essentially the system of record, um, something that has been naturally owned by Atesis. Um, you know, we have our own captive processor that is the system of record. Mm -hmm. Then we have our own industrial bank in Utah, which, you know, at this point, we probably have 2.5 or $3 billion worth of outstanding receivables today at the bank. So we're providing funding. We're the issuer, so we hold the license from MasterCard and Visa, um, and we have to do all the compliance. So think KYC, AML, and all of that. I mean, we, what we do is we provide a one-stop shop for these virtual payments to the travel industry, and then we've extended that into the accounts payable industry here in the United States as well. Same, it's the exact same technology, just pointed it at a different direction. Right, right, that makes sense. And so you mentioned earlier that part of what you're trying to do is to move companies from paper to digital, try to yeah. capture some, some of the interchange yeah. revenue from card spend. Yeah. In the current state, what percentage of transactions are digital, what percent are paper, and yeah. what's, what's also the total scale, like how many transactions yeah. or what's the dollar, dollar size associated with all these transactions? Yeah, so market size is not even worth talking about in the, for the AP market. The AP market in the United States, there are trillions of dollars that go over business to business. Yeah. But here's the disappointing part, is the market's massive. But the disappointing part is, you know, I looked at this market when I was 22 years old in 2001, and I did that on behalf of American Express at the time. And we did that with a lens towards killing the check. Um, because the check has essentially become the payment mechanism for one company to pay another. Today, 2019, the United States of America, you know, there are multiple numbers, they all hover around 55% of all payments for the B2B space are on check. That is wild. Yeah. I mean, as a payments person, you think about consumer payments and you think about the electronification of consumer payments. I mean, when's the last time you wrote a check? I don't know where my checkbook is. Yeah, yeah. I have no idea. But B2B in the United States, you know, more than half of the payments are still on check. Then we've got another um, large portion that are on wire. And so, you know, about, I think it's the numbers that I've seen are roughly about 30% of the uh, transactions are on um, ACH. We have a balance on wire. And then here's, here's the kicker. 4%, 4%, one hand, 4% of the transactions in the United States that are B2B transactions are put on a 16-digit card, whether that be plastic or virtual. 4%, by the way, leads the rest of the world for carded spend for B2B hmm. by two percentage points. The rest of the world is at 2% penetration in wow. B2B. So, you know, so good. So, so, we're, so, so we're look, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> this glass is more than half full. We're the, we're the leader in the world. And so, you know, and so, you know what's, what's, what's changed in the past 19 years, and I think you actually see this right now with a focus on fintech, um, innovation is happening. We're getting deeper penetration in the AP files of how to convert that to some sort of electronic means. Um, you know, and that's by not just shifting the spend over, it's by providing value to the ecosystem with a rationale to put it on a virtual card. The rationale being, I can tie a unique 16 digit account number to an invoice number, present a card, and once I get the authorization, I know that that payment's good. Um, and then do supply chain financing powered by that whole thing too. Got it. Right. That's that's the value proposition 
today in the AP space that's resonated for 20 years in the travel space, now resonating in the AP space here in the United States, and you know, is why we're seeing more and more momentum and more and more startups, and frankly, more and more legacy financial institutions interested in this space. So we'll touch on the innovation that's going on in the space in a second, but looking back, I'm curious, what's, what's driven the lack of businesses embracing more electronic payments? Is it inertia? Is it the lack of value-added services around it? Is it? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard, um, and that sounds like a cop-out answer, but that's actually the answer. The answer is it's really hard. You know, B2B isn't like a consumer payment. When, it, when you know, a business sets up, so take a retailer, it sets up a shop on Main Street, and it says, I'm gonna take Visa, MasterCard, American Express, Discover payments. Once they put that on their front door, they take it from all customers, because the customer receives goods or services and then remits payment kind of at that point of sale. In the B2B arena, it doesn't work that way. The B2B arena, just think about the transaction. There's typically, you know, that same, actually use that same Main Street retailer. They have an AP file. They have to buy their raw goods. They have to uh, pay for rent. They have to pay for all the things that you need to make a business go. Many of those things are contractual. There's an invoice tied with them. There are terms tied with them. It might be pay on 30 days. It might be pay on 45. It could be as long as pay on 180. Um, and then there's a payment at the end of all of this. And so, you know, what we say in B2B is um, context matters with B2B payments. And what that means is sometimes um, a card is the right choice. Sometimes an ACH is the right choice. Sometimes check actually makes a lot of sense because the float involved with a check going through the system. You know, what we're trying to do is create the right price point and the right ergonomics. Ergonomics being how do I present the card uh, in, the, in, a, in the right way and deliver the payment in the right way mm -hmm. so that the cash application and the reconciliation process for these large money flows between two businesses goes seamlessly. I mean, we, what we want to do, the analog in the consumer world is, you know, Amazon said this, swipe right, purchase. There's actually no purchase, there's swiping right is such a, it's a great feeling when you swipe right, as opposed to when you present a card and they're taking money from you. And what we're trying to do in B2B is kind of replicate that, which is automate this whole, just, just get rid of someone involved with payments, get rid of the AP department, get rid of the AR department, get the payment running over electronic rails, make sure that it reconciles kind of as it's, going but then also dealing and I say you know I say it's hard because like think about think about the ERP systems on both sides of the business to business equation yeah right? we're dealing these ERP systems are antiquated many of them 20 plus years old they you know they're Byzantine in their architecture and then um, woefully um, indebted <laughs> um, from a tech debt standpoint right uh, and so you know oftentimes we're trying to bridge that gap as well which is how do you get electronic information out of a very old system pull it up and out and say, who do we have to pay and how are we going to pay them? But then get it into someone else's uh, system so that it can be um, presented. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how it can easily get pretty complex. Yes. Yeah. Very um, complex. Yeah. So what are, what are some of the things that you're most excited about um, that you're doing at Wex to, yeah. to help? To uh, de yeah, decomplexify it? Right. Yeah. yeah. So um, a couple things. I, I think... I'm excited, you know, we're at Money 2020, so you can't help but talk about fintechs. I'm excited about the fintech world. Um, and I'm actually heading to a dinner right after this with one of our big fintech partners. 
what I love about this partner in general, as well as a couple of their um, analogs in different markets, is what they've done really well is they've created a UI, a customer experience in just a marketing powerhouse of an engine that simplifies AP for accounts payable for small and mid-sized businesses. And so it looks and it feels a bit more like Venmo. It feels it looks a bit more like the consumer side of things. Um, you know, it's like QuickBooks, you know, version 20, but like LeapFrog where QuickBooks was, you know, 10 to 20 years ago. I think that's really interesting. And, and the reason I say that, uh, because we're powering 100% of their business. So they what they do is they connect into us via API. They connect into our software stack, which I, I explained, our banking license, our issuing license, our compliance oversight. And so what we, we've, what we have are a set of services, like custom fit for the B2B world, that then others, we just serve up to others to go and conquer and innovate. So you know, I get really excited about that. And I think there are things that, but, you know, part of my job is to arm as many innovative thinkers in the industry with a common set of payment tools that allows them to go off and hunt in different places and find different ways to create value. That's one side of it. Another side I'm really excited about are actually the legacy financial institutions. Um, you know, we work with the likes of US Bank, American Express, Commerce Bank, PNC, um, uh, Key Bank, and a host of others. And what's interesting about these banks, many of which have been around for more than 100 years, they have, they have an entitled relationship with small and medium business. I mean, that's a relationship that you can't subvert. The Treasury Bank for uh, small, medium, and large businesses, frankly, um, and what they do is they white label our software. And so what I think about those banks is they're not gonna create the software themselves in-house. But what we're gonna do is wrap it in the look, feel, tone, and manner and like give it the, give the right marketing um, consistency so that it's congruent with the master brand of the bank. Then they get all the functionality of our product set, but then they've got hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of salespeople and relationship managers that are out there moving product. So at this point, this entire stack, this entire software stack is processing about $70 billion worth of transactions. 40 of which is ours, and it's our bank, we're the issuer, we're the bank, 30 of which are our bank partners. Wow, that's quite a, quite a sizable it's business. A big number, yeah, it's a big number. And it's great to hear about your partnership with the FinTech that you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, in some of the other conversations that we've had, uh, both today and previously, this theme of uh, more established players partnering with younger fintechs is becoming a lot more prominent, whereas in the past it had been more of an adversarial relationship. Um, it, it can't be. So. I actually don't think it can be that way. As we kind of get into this new evolution that we see in the industry, there's no adversary here. I mean, the fintechs don't, will not survive if they don't, if they don't properly um, solve the compliance problems, do what they need to do from an issuing standpoint, um, the underwriting, getting that worked out as well as the incumbents can't survive without an infusion of new ideas and technology. Yeah. It has to be symbiotic. Yeah. It just has to be. Yeah, I think there's a realization that both parties can benefit from each other yeah. and create more value that way. So we'd love to switch gears a little bit. Yeah. And uh, in the past, I think you've spoken to the nimble culture at Wex. Could you tell us more about the culture at Wex and, and what makes it unique? Yeah, so Wex, it's funny. You know, I, I, I joined Wex, I wasn't necessarily looking for a job. Sometimes jobs just kind of happen. They materialize, and it's just serendipity. 
and one conversation led to another and this led to that and part of what drew me to wex is it had this small company feel at the point at the time that i joined the company's revenues were 868 million dollars of revenue which is by far the smallest company that i've ever worked at and i had 2200 employees i mean that is just having been a mckinsey partner having worked at american express is just a scale that um was uncommon to me and what and, and was um interesting but then what was most interesting is i started to talk with people it felt smaller than that you know everyone was one degree of separation apart very flat org structure very chaotic but in a in, in actually a wonderful way that leveled the organization it got rid of um a lot of the hierarchy and it forced um the technology free spirits to work with the finance free spirits to work with you know the different all the different functions and so we've scaled the company so that was 2016 when i joined at this point you know we'll we ended last year at 1.5 billion one this year at around 1.7 billion in revenue i think at this point today we have about 4900 employees so we've more than doubled the size of the company from an wow. employee standpoint and what i love is um you know we continue to have the small company scrappiness flatness we value a phone call or now um a video conference more than we value an email um text is actually more important than an email as well um rapid communication throughout the day you know it's it's a culture that for me i feel like um in what i try to espouse now as a leader of the company is how do we resist the largesse of corporate cultures how do we resist the politics how do we resist the slowness of large companies and i think that you know the way that we're trying to do that and fight back is create connectivity you know we're a very global company so we fly people around all the time because there's no substitute for facetime um we've gone google throughout all of our 44 offices which means like it's now um video conferencing at the press of a button and it works and it's like high def like it's just well the fact know, that it works is impressive because i've yeah, seen it not yeah, work many times yeah, this isn't cisco <laughs> anymore this is actually like it's stuff that works every time that you just press a button and so um you know i think that's what draws me the culture it's just it's um it's a fun place to be yeah yeah that's impressive both the growth that you mentioned but also the fact that you've been able to retain that culture as you've yeah. grown that much yeah so. i think it gets harder and harder every year though right because we're trying to you have to grow up as a company But at the same time I think our right to win in the marketplace is we're super nimble. Um we've got great technology and then we've got fantastic people. That's it. That's like the that's the three ingredients. Mix yeah. it all together that's wax. It's a good combo. Yeah. So before we close two more questions for you and the yeah. first is what advice would you have for someone just entering the the fintech space or the payment space? Career advice. Yeah, so our industry is incredibly nuanced. Um it's difficult to break into this industry. And that's not an understatement. It actually is difficult. It's you need to bring not only the business acumen that you learn at Warden or whatever your past history is, but then you need to learn the speak, the dynamics of, you know, if if it's a card company, like how does the four-party model work in credit cards? Why does it work that way? What was the original um question that was being solved 70 years ago when the associations were stood up? Um learning that history, learning the language around it. And then frankly like you know um Peter you and I were talking about this before is coming to events like this where you realize that the industry is actually quite small. 
and it's beholden upon anyone entering the industry to meet as many people as possible. And what you find is quite quickly, you're no more than three degrees of separation from pretty much everyone in the global industry. Yeah, yeah, I've definitely found that. Just walking <laughs> around the floor earlier today. Yeah. Um, on the point on learning the history, um, I think that's a really important one. I'm curious, top of mind, are there any resources that you recommend for someone who wants to learn more about uh, the payment space or the history of how the payments market or industry has developed over the years? Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I think I grew up with it in my DNA, actually, at American Express. Yeah. In American Express, it's a three-party model rather than the four-party model because it's a closed loop. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you, know, you can read a lot online about all of this, but where it really comes to life are in conversations with people. And so go talk with someone from American Express or WEX on the fleet side, where we run, we run closed loop networks, where we are the issuer, we're the scheme and the acquirer. And why does that work? Then go talk with someone at Visa and MasterCard. And how does their four party model work? And then how are their strategies different as companies? Because they're actually not the same. Yep. And as a consumer, you kind of feel like they're the same commodity, but they're not. And they actually have different perspectives on this. And then go talk with a bank, a financial institution, which is on the issuing side, or go talk with a merchant acquirer, like someone from First Data, you know, and understand what is their perspective on all of this. I actually think, you know, there is no silver bullet from an educational standpoint for this industry. And that's actually part of what I find so interesting about it is you're always learning in the way that you learn is just by connecting with people and talking about their perspectives, different perspectives on the same ecosystem. Yep, yeah, and it's a very, it's a very complex ecosystem. And yeah. it's, it's changing, right, in, yeah. in different ways. Yeah. Um, that's great advice, and the one thing I'll add is for people to also listen to our podcast, because uh, that's another great resource. <laughs> yeah, did I miss that one? Uh, <laughs> well, I had to make sure we made a plug for it. Um, <laughs> So uh, in closing, I always think it's fun to, to ask folks uh, what they do for fun outside of the office. So yeah. any hobbies that you have that you yeah, can speak so, to? Yeah, so I live in Portland, Maine. Um, you know, I spent 20 years um, in and around New York City, lived in um, uh, London and San Francisco and Boston and did the urban life for a while. In Portland, Maine, we've got two young kids, uh, six and eight years old. It is just an amazing place to be. What an incredible place to raise kids. So hobbies? raising two unbelievably great kids um, in just this beautiful corner of the world with great outdoor activities and natural scenery around us. And actually just a vibrant, little tiny metropolitan area. Um, so, you know, I, I spend a lot of my time skiing during the wintertime. I do mountain biking and road biking during the summertime and trying to get my kids into both of those activities. Uh, and then enjoying, you know, my wife and I try to do date night, you know, if not every week, every other week. Uh, in Portland, Maine just has this incredible culinary bend to it. So um, it's been, it's been a, a good transition for us. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Jay. Thank you for sharing your advice and for joining us on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure.